listen to Bon Appetit Poocast. I'm Adam Rappaport. All right, this week, up first, editorial assistant Jesse Sparks talks to Clancy Miller, writer and cookbook author who just launched the beginnings of For the Culture, a biannual magazine by and celebrating black women in the food and wine space. Clancy just wrapped up her crowdfunding campaign and has now put out a call for submissions to start shaping the first issue. She and Jesse chat about what inspired her to start this endeavor, the challenges of raising money, and how she hopes to build a real community with the contributors and readers of For the Culture. And after that, I sit down with senior staff writer Alex Beggs, who talked about her latest feature for Bon Appetit in our March issue. Alex investigated why we are so addicted to crispy food. She talked about visiting the Frito-Lay headquarters, a dream of hers. Uh, We talked Popeyes, and we munch on lots of chips. All right, here we go with Jesse and Clancy. So, Clancy, you are a triple threat, one of the busiest people in the food world. Can you give me a rundown of what you've kind of been up to recently? What have I been up to? So, in December, I started a crowdfunding campaign to launch for the Culture Magazine, a magazine celebrating black women in food and wine. And that has had me quite busy (laughs) from December through we're now in the month of February. It's been really busy. So doing the crowdfunding campaign, which wrapped um, at the beginning of February, doing like a fundraising event for the crowdfunding campaign at Ode to Babel, also writing, because I am a writer. <laughs> I also have like a day job. And also getting a site up now that the campaign has successfully wrapped. Ta-da! Ta-da! Yesterday, I just did a call for submissions to the magazine, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's a, a short little snapshot. <laughs> amazing, amazing. I would love to hear more about For the Culture, but before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about your background? My whole life background? Your whole life story. Get, where were you born? <laughs> what time? Let's do your whole chart. We can do that. It'll be great. I know that you are a cookbook author, a pastry chef, a writer, beloved storyteller, total ham. Um, So can you kind of tell me a little bit about how you came to the food world? I came to the food world, uh, I'll start with my parents. I grew up in a household where we enjoyed really good food. My mom, when she got married to my dad, decided she was gonna become a gourmet and really started following Craig Claiborne and Julia Child and just diving into cooking really well. So I was lucky to grow up with parents who cook well and also parents who enjoy going out to restaurants. That was kind of the first part. Then the second part, when I graduated from college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I started this whole process of kind of trial by elimination. (laughs) And so I took filmmaking classes and acting classes and editing film classes and cooking classes. And those were the ones that really resonated with me the most. And then I ended up getting an apprenticeship. I had a day job in a non-governmental organization because I also thought I wanted to work in international (laughs) development. You were Um, literally the woman who has lived a thousand lives. Yeah, and (laughs) at that point I was all of like 21. (laughs) But um, in any case, I got an apprenticeship at Fork Restaurant in Philadelphia and I, um, <laughs> I shouldn't be saying this because I ran late to this appointment, <laughs> but I like as time has sometimes been an issue for me. 
although today I really tried my best. But like at that apprenticeship, I showed up on the dot on time every single weekend. And I loved it. I loved everything I was doing. I was basically a prep cook. And I loved it. And I kind of tried to get as much information from my chef as possible. And she said, you don't have to go to cooking school to become a chef, but I do recommend it if you want to be a pastry chef. And at the time, I did want to do another kind of schooling. I wanted to go back to school for something. So that kind of made me want to go to culinary school. And so I decided to go for pastry studies. And that's how I ended up at Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. Um, After Le Cordon Bleu, I stayed in Paris. I apprenticed in um, bakeries and restaurants. And I loved it, but I also realized I'm a bit slow in the kitchen. So that's when I decided to kind of start exploring the world of writing about food. Can you kind of tell me about what it was like for you as you were just kind of navigating the industry and looking both for inspiration to see if it was a place that you could find yourself in or if it was an industry that reflected you at all? I I think my first two my first three role models were B. Smith. When I graduated from college, we ate at B. Smith's restaurant and that felt so special. I just thought, I was just amazed by her because I am always amazed by black people doing things that I'm interested in or think I could be interested in. So the fact that she had her own restaurant and had her own media presence, I thought was really cool. Marcus Samuelson was definitely a person I looked up to and I didn't feel like a closeness in proximity because I think also he had passed by this point, but Patrick Clark mm. um, was another person. But in general, I didn't I didn't think of it as a lack. I just didn't have, the people I looked up to were either in close proximity or they just seemed really far away and not necessarily like me, but I still looked up to them. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely. whatever celebrity chefs were of that moment, like a Von Gretchen, or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was just yeah. like, ooh, cool. But I didn't really feel like many people reflected my background or me, yeah. So then how did that kind of start shaping your writing? In all honesty, so I'm not sure it shaped my writing at first at all, um, because I think I was very obsessed, I'm still obsessed with France, but like I, I am a francophile so like I was really interested for a while in trying to capture as much about France like even while I was living in Paris I would write about restaurants there and interview chefs there that part of me was expressed in my writing and then I had the opportunity to do some ghostwriting for other chefs and that kind of was expressing somebody else you know, in somebody else's point of view. And then at a certain point, I decided I wanted to write my own cookbook, which kind of went into kind of my experience in Paris, which inspired me to start cooking for myself more, hence the title of my first cookbook, Cooking Solo. So yeah, I feel like a lot of what I write or have been interested in writing comes from what I've been obsessed with or interested in or starting to do in my life. As you've been getting more and more obsessed and more and more kind of like steeped into the food world, how did the inklings of For the Culture start to take root? So it's actually a very specific thing. I was offered the opportunity to 
guest edit an all black issue of a full of food publication. Unfortunately, that ended up not going forward. But during the conversations for that process, I started talking to and meeting. I had already started meeting a lot of black writers and specifically black women writers in the food space and meeting black women chefs and food stylists. And I also was introduced to Oriana Corin, who introduced me to a lot of other people and people started giving me ideas for stories. It was very exciting. And I just thought, oh my gosh, even though there was a downward spiral on that guest editorship, I just thought, and I had a friend um, who recommended to me, he's like, you need to do this yourself. And it was one of those things where I would just every single day see a story or a person and think, oh my gosh, this I want to dig deeper on that or I want to know more or I want to tell that person's story. And just realizing that if I don't do this, I won't do this and somebody else will do it and I'll be really mad. Also seeing what's happening in, I feel like there are really interesting things happening in the film and television world in terms of representation and to a certain extent that's also happening in the food world but I just feel like black women are the architects of kitchens and cuisines in this country from the very beginning after Native American people and of course that's black people in general but I also feel like black women historically get the least kind of shine you know what I mean yeah so I just feel like I actually want to just focus on black women (laughs) and that's brilliant I feel like sometimes there can be pressures to really not try to silo yourself or like people can sometimes try to give all many advice of just being like oh well like maybe that's too narrow a focus or too narrow a scope but really one of the things that really excited me about for the culture is that it's black women giving other black women the opportunity to to speak to their own experiences, to to boost other people that they're, other women that they're thrilled about. And I think it's been beautiful just to kind of see the outpourings of support and community. Can you kind of tell me what that community and support has looked like for you? This whole process, the crowdfunding campaign has, has now wrapped, but it's been humbling and awe-inspiring because I thought there would be be some people who would resonate with the idea. I felt like, okay, I I think it's a solid idea. I know there'll at least be a few handfuls of people who think the same. Somehow we can make this happen. And as soon as I posted about it on Instagram and Twitter, it was really fascinating to see how quickly other people started talking about it. And it kind of, for me, like my level of I'm not like a famous person so like for me it went viral people were talking about it who I don't even know um, or people were talking about it who I didn't ask to because in the beginning the day before the day of I sent an email and like a few texts out to people saying you know I'm going to launch this please post about it just want you to know please support and of course all of those people did but the fact that so many people who I didn't even ask to started talking about it and then I think in the first day we raised five thousand dollars in 24 hours which was great and then funnily enough in the last 24 hours raised I think twenty four thousand dollars so just to see 
that was incredible. Just rolling in cash, just raking it in. I can't say all of that. The goal, to be clear, was $40,000. So it's not, I mean, that's a, it's, it needs to mm-hmm. launch the first issue. But to see that happen Absolutely. from 700 people over the course of 60 days was incredible. You know, we have the number here. You raised more than $38,000. Yeah. Which is incredible for a project like this. Totally, and extra on Venmo. Oh, extra on Venmo, <laughs> just multiple streams of income. Yes. Surprise, this is a yeah, finance yeah. podcast now, so. <laughs> but no, that's incredible. Um, so can you kind of give us a behind the scenes look at what it really looks like to put together a crowdfunding campaign like this? What are the costs that you're thinking about? What are the the little nuances that often people don't think about when they're looking at a, at a fundraiser like this? So fortunately, fortunately for me, I have written a book and done some marketing for it. And so, and also fortunately been able to kind of study other people's book launches because my first book was my first time doing that. So I've now kind of just studied how people promote books. And there's, there are a lot of similarities. So when you write a book, and I would say the same thing for if you are doing crowdfunding, you kind of want to come up with a list of people you want to reach, tap into your social media, and you want to get other people talking about it. That's the second step. So the first step in reaching out to your friends and family is to kind of give them a list, like talking points. This is what the project is. This is why it's super important. This is why now is the time. This is where you go to give money. (laughs) (laughs) This is how much I'm trying to raise. This is where the money will be going to. I really wanted to make it clear that this is a project that I'm raising money for, not just because I think it's important and to pay for the printing, but I also want to pay contributors. So I wanted people to know that this sum is also going to that I don't have to ask black women to work for free because that's the very last thing I want to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just kind of spreading that information to your nearest and dearest and then all your followers. And then the great thing is that a lot of people reach back out to me, people I know, people I don't know, saying, could you use our, our space for a fundraising event? The owners of Ode to Babel reached out to me and said, if you want to do a fundraiser party, you can use our space for free. They were, it was the easiest thing and it was so much fun. So I organized a fundraiser party because that was also a good way to get eyes on the campaign because after a certain point, there is a little bit of a lull, you know, like Mm -hmm. in the beginning it's super hot and then like, I don't know, around Christmas time, it kind of got a little bit slow. So it was really great to be able to have a fundraiser party. Um, So I would highly recommend doing an event if you're ever thinking about doing a crowdfunder constantly reaching out to people basically and being really responsive if people want to interview you for example absolutely yeah said people would be (laughs) thrilled to have the opportunity sometimes organizing a gofundme or a crowdsourcing campaign like this can be an expensive endeavor in and of itself yeah like there are all these service fees there are platform fees there are fees for breathing air and apparently having internet access totally Um, can you tell me a little bit about just some of the behind the scenes logistics that you've been troubleshooting and just kind of sure solving as you were figuring it out yeah so all right so the number raised on indiegogo was just over thirty-eight thousand. after platform fees that becomes 33,000. 
which is still great. Mm-hmm. Indiegogo takes, and I'm sure other crowdfunding platforms do the same, they take a reserve fund. Mm-hmm. So they have about $2,000 set aside from the amount raised to deal with any issues if people, God forbid, ask for a refund or something. But that's all to say that, you know, so 38000 was raised, it gets taken down to 33000 There were also, like I said, thankfully, some direct gifts over Venmo. Hey. <laughs> Which kind of ultimately got it up to 40,000, but then for example for example, I just mentioned I will be having some fundraising events for for the, for the culture this summer. Part of that is to kind of help balance that out. Um, there absolutely are fees for things like branding, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? I um, there's a graphic designer I'm working with, Carolyn Singh, who's wonderful. And of course, um, I pay her (laughs) Mm -hmm. to do the work. And you want to have some graphic thing to go along with your crowdfunding campaign. Um, I also paid for a videographer, Elise Fox, to film me for the crowdfunding campaign because you have to have a video. Uh, And, you know, the fundraiser party for For the Culture, um, I had a DJ, so that made the party amazing it was like a proper Mm -hmm. dance party but also have to pay for that so i would say about a thousand dollars or so somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand maybe a little more to just make it look like a proper campaign absolutely and that's before you have received before the campaign even wraps up so yeah it's definitely there are costs (laughs) and you see them you see them after the campaign wraps, but it's worth it because in this case, we got pretty much to the whole goal, so that feels good. But there's also the question of sustainability and mm-hmm. how do you keep it going? And that is an ongoing question. <laughs> we can worry about that tomorrow. Exactly, we're gonna bask in the victory. <laughs> you know, count our, count our blessings. Exactly. You know. You've mentioned all of these costs and fees and there's so much intentionality that went into this. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose print as the go-to medium? I still like paper. Mm -hmm. That's mainly why I chose print. I still am a fan of magazines. I'm a fan of mainstream and, you know, traditional legacy magazines. I like magazines. And so that's the main reason why I chose to do a print magazine. It is biannual, so I figured let me give myself a break. <laughs> I'm not trying to do something quarterly here, <laughs> twice a year. And if that needs to change to once a year, I am not ashamed to say that. But mm-hmm. twice a year is the goal, twice a year is, is the intention, and I feel like that's reasonable. And I'm currently researching printers and talking with printers to figure out the most reasonable place to have it printed. But I feel like printed magazines are still really special. Absolutely. You've also mentioned just how you are also like launching a website and are kind of in the beginning of stages of just like really conceptualizing what for the culture can start as and also what it can grow into. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what you hope to see it becoming or where you see it going? Sure. Well, the website in all honesty, I knew I was going to be having this conversation, so I thought I should probably say the website oh. <laughs> or have one. Oh, look um, at this. So it's for the culturefoodmag.com. And the idea is that this is a magazine that's going to be twice a year. Mm-hmm. And I 
I can't turn around a magazine in you know like two months so I figured let me have a place for people to go where they can get updates where they can join the newsletter where they can see press about it and also um, where they can see things about past issues once there are some past issues Mm -hmm. and also where they can submit work because as I said I just started the call for submissions there's also because I am still in the process of figuring out how to make this a sustainable endeavor financially Mm -hmm. um, there was a donate button for the patreon page (laughs) the future of it I think is quite fertile I think there's the possibility definitely for a for the culture event I think there's the possibility for a for the culture podcast or some kind of like documentary I definitely would like to see it grow into a multimedia venture baby steps baby steps baby we're steps. yeah <laughs> you know we're taking it one step at a time exactly. there's nothing wrong with that baby steps so then can you also kind of tell me about just why you felt now was the perfect moment why it was the perfect time okay so a few different reasons the passing of chef leah chase the passing of tony morrison and Toni Morrison's quote stays with me, and I may misquote her a little, but if there's a book you want to read, write it. And I definitely feel like that applies to me and for also for For the Culture. And I just felt like this is, there's so much happening and people, time passes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I really, I had the pleasure of interviewing Leah Chase three times for other people's projects and it yeah. was a blessing. They were all phone interviews. I was hoping to be able to interview her for for the culture, but I just realized okay, you have to you have to do what you want quickly because especially if it involves other people mm-hmm. that you know, you kind of just have to seize the moment. And I do feel like there is a lot happening. I'm really inspired by more of the inclusion we're seeing in the food media world and in the food world, I think it can be pushed further and expanded. And so I just want to be a part of it. So that's, that I think answers the why. Yeah. Yeah. Or why now rather. I think one of the things that we can take for granted when we have access to these communities or when we know people digitally or socially or we follow so-and-so and like we're, we're Twitter friends with them or we're, we're Instagram friends with them. It can be almost comfortable to yeah. just be like, oh, yeah, I'll reach out to them next week or I'll, I'll talk to them at so-and-so time. Yeah. But to really just have the intentionality to say, I want FaceTime with you. Let's yeah. talk. Let's create a thing together. Totally. Is, is a brilliant thing. And it just really speaks to the the kind of community and the drive that you've been able to cultivate but also tap into? Ultimately, the whole point of For the Culture is to highlight other people and to showcase what is happening now among black women food photographers, chefs, food stylists, etc. So my hope is that the community will continue to grow and also that people will begin to build around for the culture but also build around the people who are contributing to it you know because i want to i feel like it will be made by the people who are contributing to it whether they are contributing to the magazine or collaborating to do events my goal is definitely eventually to do an event thing but for me the community 
right now is definitely online and will definitely be felt within the first issue in terms of the stories that are told and the amount of attention that we give and share and lift up for all of these stories. It's so exciting. It's brilliant. Can you tell me a little bit about ways that people can, you know, support the magazine or get involved? People should follow For the Culture Food Mag on Instagram and also go to the website forthecultureofoodmag.com just for posts about what is happening. Uh, Right now, there's a call for submission, so people should submit. If you are a black woman in the food and wine space, you should absolutely submit your ideas. I want to see your pitches. Uh, People can also support on Patreon if they are inspired to do so. And right now there aren't events planned, but I actually will be having some fundraising dinners probably this summer. So people can either follow on Instagram or follow or join the newsletter to get updates to see what's happening and also for news about the first issue which uh, I really hope and intend to have out this summer at the latest this fall but yeah those are two ways people can can stay in touch in the midst of all of these like very heady conversations very sometimes isolating things to think about because there are times when it's just you and you're going through the logistics of putting everything together and making sure everyone can get paid and that it can be sustainable. What is one of the ways that you've been kind of tapping into that communal support, not just for the culture as like an endeavor, but also for your own sense of community and grounding? Oh, that's so nice. I do this thing called Reiki brunch with a friend of mine and we had a for the culture fundraiser with Reiki brunch. My friend is a Reiki practitioner. And for the brunch, I do the food, he does the Reiki, and we do Reiki in a group, and people come and chill, and then we eat together. That has been really nice. And then just kind of having conversations with friends and venting when necessary, (laughs) or mostly, yeah, therapy too. But yeah, conversations, texts, at this point, I've mostly been, the past couple of weeks have been a little stressful, but I've mostly just been elated. I've truly been elated by the response. It's truly been uplifting and awe-inspiring to see people so excited. I'm excited, but I can be excited a lot. <laughs> so it's nice to share. Right. It's nice to have other people <laughs> share in my excitement. Um, and it's also like, oh my gosh, <laughs> other people <laughs> like this idea. This is awesome. Right? And to see black women really see and share their love for it and say like, absolutely, this is this is time. Like it's been time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that feels really good. That feels like support to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that has just been just beautiful to hear you really talk about and like think about um, has just been the fact that it seems like you have a very clear sense of who you want for the culture to be. Um, Can you tell me like who that, if there was like one person in the world or like not necessarily like name, date, social security, but like 
if you were to say who for the culture was for, can you tell me who that person would be? I think I might say my younger self or younger people. When you are starting out in the world and when you're starting out in the food world and food and wine world and specifically, I think it's really important to have as many role models as possible to see what is possible, not just in an aspiring kind of super fancy way, but to hear all kinds of stories and to understand that it's good to tell your story and also understand that it's good to start whatever endeavor it is that you want to start and study whatever you want to study and do what it is you're interested in doing in food and wine and to see examples of black women who are here and now doing it who've done it before like our Edna Lewis's our B Smith's you know what I mean Mm -hmm. our Leah Chase's so my goal is to really honor us here honor the women on whose shoulders we stand and to let that hopefully inspire people who are in the industry now but also people really young people up and coming clancy thank you so much for making time to come onto the pod we love you we are so excited about what's coming from for the culture and you know we'll we'll be staying in touch we'll be staying tuned thank you for having me i really appreciate it thank you Begs, you know that saying, never meet your heroes? Is that right? Is that, that, that's the saying, right? Uh, I've met a couple and it was horrible, but I know it's true. Okay, so was going to the Frito-Lay HQ, was that like a letdown or was I like, oh my God, this place is even better than I thought? Okay, in my imagination on the way there in my brother's car, because he dropped me off, I was imagining this like cliche Willy Wonka chip factory and there would be like a moat of potato chips (laughs) and you know just like chips hanging from the ceiling that I could just like jump up and bite and it just ended up being like corporate carpeted cubicle office in a Dallas office park with like a man-made lake which I thought was a nice metaphor considering like how unreal chips are would have been awesome I was still really 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 happy to be there okay (laughs) I just want to say I was bouncing up and down most of the time it was better than our cubicles in our office building <laughs> well now we have open offices oh so yeah open offices you know, i can't there, compare there's that whole like front page story in the times about how open offices are now actually now not good and yeah they're bad they're for horrible. creativity we both know this we get nothing done <sighs> which is fun though That's yeah better than working all day <laughs> uh, what if they had or you w- could work at frito-lay okay have- but what if they had like one of those pits that the kids jump into with all like the foamy balls you yes. know but they had it with the frito puffs balls you yeah, know the like a, an orange one and mm. then you'd come out and you'd be dusted with orange dusting yes i that's what i pictured it would be like but talking to the people who work there in r&d like these very nerdy science people was extremely enjoyable like the the knowledge they have and the kind of like little details i got about how they think about potato chips which is so different than how we think of them uh was it was really fun. So they appreciated your appreciation of, of chips and stuff? I was shoving the chips in my face, so <laughs> I hope that they were appreciative. Um, I think they were being careful not to reveal state secrets. Like, they wouldn't let me on this second floor room where they think they have, like, their version of a textrometer, which is this robot that 
bites down on chips and measures how crispy they are. They said that was under construction, and I was like, I don't think it is. Couldn't they just get like uh, some like <laughs> fraternity brothers from University of Texas to just come in every day and and pretend? B- yeah, just pretend. <laughs> bite on it. Okay, or we'll give you a case of beer and then just bite on these. They do consumer panels, and I would. I told them if they ever need anyone, I would be my other dream is to be on a panel where people come in and they taste maybe like. I don't know, three to 15 prototypes of an upcoming chip and they rate them and they give their feedback and it's like stuff like, how much did you, how much did you enjoy this chip? And I feel qualified to do that. <laughs> All right. So the piece in the March issue of Bon Appetit, Crispy Ink. Why are we so drawn to the snap of a potato chip or the crackle of fried chicken? biology, psychology, and an incredible amount of engineering. What I enjoyed about this piece is how deep you got in, again, to the, I I guess it's kind of science, but also just the nerdy study of of this and and human interaction with Crispy. And, And I guess my first question is like, how did this piece come about and what did you think the piece would be? It came about because of the genius known as Sarah Jampel, who wanted to do a wanted me to do a story, which is very nice of her, on why we love crispy, crunchy, golden brown, that combination of things so much. Um, and then we sort of brainstormed and talked about it a little and narrowed it down to just crispy in general, especially after we did the Thanksgiving issue, and I think we used it, the word crispy. 75 times it felt like and there was just no other word and it turns out every other language other than English has a million different words for crispy and crunchy and yet Mm. we only have a couple so that's how it came about and Meryl said do you want to do this story and I said do I get to go to Frito-Lay headquarters (laughs) and she said well we won't pay for your I'm ar- I said I'm already going <laughs> and so because well, your family lives in Texas my brother lives in Plano which uh, has a lot of corporate headquarters of things you would never realize like across the street from Frito-Lay was Yum Foods Yum mm. Foods uh, is Pizza Hut Taco Bell and KFC I believe I tried to get in there too but I couldn't squeeze my <laughs> way in I tried you're just at um, the gate buzzing <laughs> it's me Alex Banks and I'm hungry so let me um, just let's put to give the listener some context and some idea of what our open office plan is like, why do you think Sarah John Pell thought of you when the idea of a crispy article came about? Probably because of my designated chip plate or my love of the obscure and food science and just kind of getting like really nerdy about things. I love wait, reading wait, wait. studies. Designated chip plate? I actually, I think maybe Delaney coined it that, but I have like a relatively large dinner plate at my desk that I pull out when it's time for chips and I'll just take a bag of chips and pour it on the plate and open up a crisp can of Diet Coke because those combination of things is um, essential and uh, I love potato chips very much and I know I'm not the only one so I feel fine admitting that. So what did you learn at the Frito-Lay headquarters in Plano, Texas? What I really just liked was their corporate jargon, and that delighted me. I'm a very simple person. Um, I liked that they called Lay's classic flat PCs, and like all potato chips are PCs. So you have flat PCs, ruffles are ridged PCs, tortilla chips are TCs, and then they have these categories of the chips. So kettle chips and Doritos are considered hard bite, and those are typically 
consumers like hard bite chips more than like a regular Lay's, which is like pretty delicate in comparison. And the harder bite chips have stronger flavors added to them. So that's why you see like really intense, crazy flavored kettle chips. Like I have flaming Hot kettle chips under my desk right now for my chip plate situation later today. But you won't see so many crazy flavors on a regular Lay's chip. Because they can't stand up to all that flavor. Exactly. See, I have issues. I'm not a huge I find those assertively flavored, like pickle flavored, dill, whatever. Sometimes it's like, too far. It's too much. Yeah. And I find it too crunchy. And like, so you, when you I were like at, to push the limit, though. What, you brought back with you some of the new Ruffles doubles, which double crunch, uh, double crunch which <laughs> you say on the bag advertises 2x the crunch, two times the crunch. I found yeah. them. They were too thick. They were too a much for me. A lot of people were whining about this. Oh, it's too hard. It's too crunchy. They went too far. I remember Rachel Carton specifically screaming. And I was like, you guys, obviously, they just need a dip. These would be, okay. They would stand up to dip, but how they are quite hard. And what for you? Did you bring like a cheesy flavor back or something? They were, I believe those were, yeah, the cheddar, cheddar. Um, double crunch. So, all right. So this also... Before Which we... are kettle-style ruffles. So imagine uh, a ruffle chip that's given the kettle treatment. So kind of browner and more Okay, cooked. so let's... All right, so there's a couple of things which I find interesting here. A, what a kettle chip is compared to a regular chip, and who apparently a kettle chip appeals to more? Me. <laughs> I love... Kettle chips, specifically jalapeno kettle chip, that's always my sandwich accompaniment. And when I told one of the R&D folks at Frito-Lay, she was like, oh, it's interesting you say that because we find that women love kettle chips more than men. And I was like, do you have science to back that up? Because I'm a journalist. And she was like, well, in our consumer testing, we've found some something that follows that. I, yeah. a, a, I love that they, they do these quote-unquote studies. But also, yeah, so it says right here, um, Dr. Chris... Chofi? Chofi? Maybe? Um, C-I-O-F-F-E. Sorry, Chris, if I mispronounced your name. Chofi? Yeah. Senior Senior Vice President of Sustainability She's and Global genius. Snacks R&D at PepsiCo. Phew, you wrote. It's an interesting combo, but VP of Sustainability and Global Snacks titles. R&D. That's how you know she's really important. She's actually way up there. I was I honored bet, yeah. to talk to her. Beamed with pride at her chip babies, I beamed with gluttonous joy. I gushed like a red carpet reporter <laughs> about what a fan I was of jalapeno kettle chips. And she says, women really seem to like the kettle cooked. And usually the foldovers are the secret. Foldovers as in the chips that fold in the fryer like shells. Frito-Lay got the female fact from the post-market reports and from consumer panels. But a 2015 study at University of Arkansas came to similar findings. Female consumers were more likely to notice food texture, especially crisp and crunch, than their male counterparts whose attention first goes to food color and flavor. So that's you seconds ago saying too many flavors, too distracting. And I'm saying "Mm, here for the crunch. Interesting. I think there is a limit to the crisp when crispy has gone too far. Like I'd be curious how long the double crunch ruffles stay on the market. Because some stuff gets, you know, gets introduced and then disappears. Do you know when crispy has gone too far? Do you know what they call it? Crunchy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Can we talk about crispy versus crunchy? Yes, because this used to be a debate we had in the office constantly. And Alex Delaney would stand up and say, there is a difference. And then he would spout out the difference, which was completely from the top of his head. And in fact, he is wrong. It is based on science. Scientists have <laughs> studied this. It is not Alex Delaney's opinion. And there's a difference. 
there's a couple ways of looking at the difference, but what that study ended up concluding was if you measure the decibels, the sound of someone uh, crunching into something, they found that crispy would be a higher pitched sound that is, mm -hmm, you can hear it, usually eaten and bitten down near the front of the mouth, and then crunchy, deeper sound back of the molars. And then to continue, you you can also mark the difference by crispy is something that makes many ruptures when you bite into it, and then crunchy would just be a few ruptures and breaks in your ruptures. mouth. I've never used that word while eating. Yeah, a lot of new words came into my vocabulary in this story. I'm gonna, I'm gonna Someone bu- told me that crispy has acoustical resonance. Ooh, I yes. did not make it in the story, but it's still very close let's to my see, heart. Let's see if this lay potato chip. So I'm going to eat this, as you said, with the front of my, like the, I my, think, my yeah, front you teeth. What do you call your it. front teeth? Your... I don't know. You are doing what I did at this sound lounge, a sound mixing studio, which is eat chips in front of a microphone. Okay, you're jumping ahead in our <laughs> podcast. But, all right, so I'm going to bite down on a Lay's Classic with my front teeth. What are the front teeth called again? The big teeth in the front? Front teeth? I don't know. You're two front teeth. <laughs> don't know. Yeah, you're two front teeth. <laughs> I know what molars are. I know what incisors are. Ready? The other ones. It definitely is loud and it makes a noise, but you can... It does. It sounds higher, pitched and light and delicate. And then... You know what else I have here? My favorite, Pringles. Once you pop the fun don't stop. Pop in the... All right. <laughs> now, you write about Pringles, so... As you mentioned, within your research, quote unquote, you went to like a sound lab where they actually record people crisping and crunching on things. Yeah, I think we don't realize or people who haven't gone to film school don't realize that every TV show and commercial you watch um, has had all of these sound effects that are super mundane things like cars driving by added like when someone's walking down like a hallway of a government building and yeah. the leather sole shoes are like and we just kind of assume that's the sound of the day they were shooting but the sound lounge goes in and records what are called foley's which are sound effects and when it comes to food commercials it's to comply with truth and advertising laws it has to be the actual or no. close to the food. Wait, seriously? Yeah. So if you're making the sound of a Pringle, it actually has to be a Pringle. I believe so. I'll have to fact check so, that right, so one, but I know that's also true for food styling in C- photos. A couple of questions. You talked about crunching down on a Pringle in front of a microphone. Mm-hmm. My question, does anyone ever actually eat just one Pringle or does everybody stack their Pringles? And then it's a question of how many Pringles you're going to stack. That sounds like a... Uh, a personal decision you should talk to your therapist about, but I'm a single Pringle really? consumer. Emma? Yeah. I just like the, to make the experience last as long I'm going to say possible. this. The drunker you are, the more you stack. <laughs> You're just like, so at the sound lounge, sound lounge, they had recorded years ago a sound, what's called a sound archive for Pringles, which was every combination of sounds Pringles would ever need for whatever reason. You know, maybe on their website you have a button that clicks yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like a crunch. So like a three stack, four so stack, So they recorded one eating one chip, eating 15 chips, crumbling the chips between hands, eating the chip in many different nibbles. I'm going to start with the <laughs> single chip and then I'm going to do the stack. So this okay. is single. Pretty crispy compared to the Lay's. It's not that big of a difference. What did you think? I think... Do you know what the, the difference the, between them the is? The unusual thing about... Pringles is that it's like kind of like reconstitute. It's like a 
potato puree that's then shaped it's dehydrated into dehydrated potato versus a Lay's, which is actually sliced, sliced potato. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, to now me. here, here comes. Emma's like, that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> here comes. Chip. Here comes a four stack, which might be a bit much. I think three stack is my optimal. Also, the four stack is going to get messy, right? That's yeah. Like, like when you you get home to the hotel room and there's the Pringles. Well, and then you wake up in the morning and there's just Pringle <laughs> shards all over you. And you're like, oh, yeah. Are you ready? Wow. Mm. Momentous. Mm. Less high pitch, more like a symphony of sound. Oh, that was lovely. Mm. That's what it was like at the sound lounge. It was like being at a potato chip concert and I've maybe <laughs> never been happier. Did you get to... So were you watching someone else, a professional, do it, and then they gave First, you a shot? First, they played me some of the commercials they'd done, and they talked me through how they made them. Like, what was fascinating was they did an Orida tater tot commercial, and they cooked the tater tots in the studio. They they ate them. You know, they they, they do things to the sound after it's recorded. They they, they enhance mm, it. Yeah, they enhance it like uh, you would in any music studio. Uh, they sent it to Orida to get their tater tot sound approval. And the company was like, yeah, that's not, that doesn't sound like our product. It's not crispy enough. And More cowbell. They're like, well, this is our job to make you happy. So they ended up refrying the tater tots. So the tater tots are frozen. Obviously, you just put them in the oven usually. But in this case, they like fried them in hot oil. Okay, we've they- talked about this before in the pot. So like typically with tater tots, like, the other week, my for the Super Bowl, my brother made some of the Shake Shack cheese sauce, like queso. You ever had that at Shake Shack? It's pretty good. And he baked up tater tots on a tray in the oven, and he did a very good job. They were pretty crunchy, if not, I would maybe even say crispy, whereas a year prior, he didn't quite bake them long enough, and they were not at all crunchy. And I was like, I didn't want to say anything at the time because he's serving you hot tater tots and cheese sauce, so you're not going to complain. No. But if you ever go to a restaurant, bar sort of place where they serve tater tots, they will typically throw them in the deep fryer, which introduces a whole other level of crisp to it. Yeah. I mean, fried chicken. Can you have crispy without fat? Yes. This is a question I'm not prepared to answer, but I'm going to go with yes. I think a lot of people wanted that to be important to what defines crispy. They're like, oh, it has to be unhealthy. I was like, I don't don't think we can actually say that definitively. I think we could probably think of examples, you know, like an apple is technically crispy. So no, there is no no fat. Yes, it is. The scientists you, will tell you it is. You I, bite into I, an apple, it is crisp. Fake science. No, I think <laughs> an apple is crisp. It is not crispy. Same thing with like a fennel salad is crisp. I, they're or, the same. Yeah, and no, the scientists' crisp, eyes, crisp they're the same. Crisp and crispy are two different things. And um, you're gonna have to take this one a to the is Journal crispy. of Texture Studies. Crisp. They will disagree. Apples, fennel, those sort of things are crisp, as is like a nice South Blanc from New Zealand. <laughs> um. Um, we're going to have to disagree, and science is on my side. <laughs> you also, on your research journey, hung out with the folks from Popeye's. Popcorn you can make without fat and is crispy, right? Nope. Yeah, you can air pop popcorn. Popcorn's not crispy, is it, Emma? Oh, my God. It has some crunch to it, but it's not crispy. It is. No. Okay, sorry. Popeye's. 
So what about Popeyes? You went to talk to the folks from Popeyes about. Their <laughs> I talked to them on a conference call okay. with like four publicists who kept me in check when I asked like what temperature the oil was. They were like, "We've told you enough." <laughs> so right after the Popeyes chicken sandwich craze. I got to talk to the head of culinary at Popeye's. She's amazing. Um, Her job is to develop and keep working on every product at Popeye's because those recipes keep changing, which I think people don't realize. Uh, So what do you mean by that? um, So, for example, the what what makes the crispy chicken sandwich so freaking crispy is. A combination, they made a special blend of flour, uh, and it's hard wheat and soft wheat, which is sort of like the difference between all-purpose flour and cake flour. Like a, uh, the, They have different, I think, protein levels if you want to get full Claire Saffitz on it. You but wrote, I found this fascinating. You wrote, it's a combination of hard and soft wheat flours similar to the difference between all-purpose and fluffy cake flour. Popeyes works directly with flour mills to source flour that has the exact percentage of protein needed to, quote, deliver that perfect shatter bite that people expect from us. Yeah, so they're not like just going to the store and buying a ton of like bulk flour. It's so scientific and the protein level of the flour is measured to be optimal and that's for all of their chicken um they have to test that wheat every year because wheat is a crop like any other thing you buy at the farmer's market and it changes from season to season i i'm not a food scientist but if like with mcdonald's french fries you thought you were about the crisp thing <laughs> i know <laughs> um that with like the potatoes and having to have that consistency in terms of the starchiness and the sugar levels and mm-hmm. everything because like McDonald's fries need to be McDonald's fries no matter where you get them, when you get them. But if you're ever making fresh French fries throughout the year, like the, the frying time and stuff changes because the potatoes change as they're stored and sugars come to the yada yada. I'm not a food scientist. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Like so if it's Popeye's McDonald's, they, they have to achieve that consistency. Yeah. So there are these big food labs in the middle of Texas where they're constantly working on this stuff. It's like endlessly interesting to me. <laughs> That was a prank. You should try. You should compare to a Dorito next because they're quite crunchy compared. So this is a nacho nacho cheese. cheese. I wonder if nacho cheese and Cool Ranch have auto audibly perceptibly. I don't know whatever. No. Oh, it's such a hard snap. Fewer ruptures, right? There's only one. I'm gonna eat. They said they told me Doritos are some one of their crunchier products. Wow. I would say Doritos straddle that line between crispy and crunchy. They're a tightrope walking. Okay. You wouldn't say that? I think there's some, there's at, at some point a blurry line, but if you were can, to compare a Dorito with an almond, uh, it's quite, it would be crispy in comparison to an almond, right? You know which one tastes better? <laughs> Wait, let's talk, uh, about, let's talk about the nubbins. Popeyes. The nubbins, the poppies. No, we want to talk about the crispy poppies. Okay, yeah, wait. Poppies. So back to the recipe of Popeyes. I don't know if I, if that, maybe that answer was satisfied. Blend of flours, and then they told me a combination of the flour and leavening, which they would not reveal what that was. I think that means cornstarch typically. Mm-hmm. And then it fries for a very specific time and has to achieve a very specific color and 
the fry time and fry oil was the top secret thing they wouldn't tell me. So I feel like that's important. A chef was like, you could just buy Popeye's chicken and put it between a bun and have yourself a crispy chicken sandwich. But it's an absolutely different coating and recipe. So FYI. So the sandwich coating recipe is different than the tenders. You can't just put the tenders. Totally different. Yeah. Because they wanted, they developed this extra crispy batter. I talked to the team, the creative team that did the ads for wait, the wait, you, you Popeye keep on, sandwich. You keep on skimping on the poppies. I know they're the ones who told me about the oh, crispy they poppies. They told you about the poppies. Yeah, um, everyone in the Popeyes world loves to talk about crispy poppies, and I would too because it's a delightful phrase. So crispy poppies are uh, these kind of like nubby, gnarled pieces of fried chicken skin. Also a good character name in the Willy Wonka movie about crispy things. (laughs) When I write the Disney version of this, Uh, Alex goes to Crispy (laughs) Factory. Okay, so Crispy Poppies are, yeah, these just like crispy pieces that come off when in the package of your sandwich or that you see in the photo like off to the side that's when you get that kind of gnarled or almost cornflake texture on the chicken said amy allerkin who is the culinary innovator at popeyes so crispy poppies signify when you see that in the photo in the ad you know that it's crispy it's so crispy that these pieces are coming off however when they are shooting the promotional materials for this sandwich the stylist might have to like replace the crispy poppies that have come off and like almost like glue them back on the sandwich to make it look extra crispy in the photo because again with truth and advertising laws you can't show a sandwich that isn't close to what you're going to get or you'll get sued and this has happened to fast food companies many times like you have to use the ingredients that they're going to use in the restaurant. So the food stylist gets the stuff that you would get at the Popeyes on 34th Street or wherever it is. For the home cook, so if you look at... um, Oh, Claire's recipe does this. For BA's best Mm -hmm. uh, fried chicken sandwich, which I highly recommend, when you're dredging the chicken and you've got like this uh, sort of buttermilk, sort of brine sort of thing, you got the flour, and then... You do it again, and then you take some of the buttermilk, and you mix it into the flour so it creates these little nubbins, and then those adhere to the chicken the second time. So when it fries up, yeah, they're they're like these little nuggets. Yes. I mean, it kind of is the best part. It's like, yeah, there's some juicy meat in there somewhere, but it's like it's the poppies that you're like, oh. Yeah, I think there. What was funny in this story was finding so many similarities between regular recipes we cook here and how super mass industrialized food pulls it off too. They're they're definite um, echoes of each other. We just don't develop recipes for a hundred thousand people a day. <laughs> but we have millions of readers, so we don't need to test the protein of our flour. But we love crispy poppies too. Alex Beggs, thank you so much. You can read. Alex's feature story in the March issue of Bon Appetit entitled Crispy Ink. It's on newsstands now. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Inamine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.